This morning's sermon comes from Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we have heard it at Ephrathah. We have found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons shall forever sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So this, uh, this week, my bride and I have been, um, we're, in the, we're in the house search process, and so we've begun applying for a mortgage. And you'll, if you guys have bought a house, you know in a mortgage, there's three big categories they ask you for. They ask you for income, then they ask you for liabilities, which is everybody's favorite. But the third one that you usually don't think about is they ask you for assets. They ask you for uh, what are the things that you possess, that you own, that the foundation of your financial life is, is laid upon. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take that same thought and turn towards our faith and ask the question, what are the assets of our faith? What is it that our faith is built upon what's been given to us? And the question that we're going to be answering is, uh, what are the promises that are given to the church? <clears throat> so the first thing I want you to see as we uh, open up the psalm, just turn to it if you have it open. If you don't have uh, a Bible with you, the scripture's included at the top of your sermon guide. But you'll notice at the beginning that um, the scriptures open looking, that Psalm 132 opens looking back to a story about David. And if you ever want to read it, you can flip to the first chronicles and go into the teens and you'll see that whole entire story. But what it's getting to is at the end of David's reign, David was the second king of Israel. He was the first basically good king of Israel. As he gets to the end of his life, he had already uh, subdued all of the enemies around Israel. As you start to get towards the end of his reign, he had built a palace for himself. His throne was beginning to be established. But then slowly you start to watch this thing well up inside of David. There's a, there's, there's a haunt that's growing in his heart and it begins to keep him up at night. And what it is, is even though he secured the nation and even though he secured his throne through a palace, he hasn't permanently secured the presence of God in his people. And the reason that matters is David understood that uh, Israel, first off, they began as a nation of slaves. They came up through the desert, then they were ushered into a land that didn't belong to them. But the reason they were a nation was because God was in their presence and they were a nation based on the promises of God. And then second, David, when he came to the throne, he was, if you read the story, he's the least of seven brothers. In fact, he's, he's uh, so little that they send him away and he's out keeping the sheep. And so when Samuel comes to find the next king of Israel, David's not even around. 
And so David makes his way to the throne through the choice of God, through the promises of God, through the sovereignty of God. And so David, as he comes to the end of his life, is beginning to realize that even though he has relative peace, even though his throne is relatively secure, ultimately the security and stability of Israel and the security and stability of his throne are based on the promises of God. They're based on the nearness of God. So as he's coming to the end of his life, he's beginning to wonder, well, what's gonna happen if I don't secure the promise? And if we're real honest, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty similar. Our hearts, um, when we wake up in the morning, we long for security. We long for stability. And our hearts begin the search looking for it. I was just talking with someone this week that it's, it's almost like we come out of the, you, you all know that my son calls them sticky splats. The, um, the little hand things that are sticky that you can sling at something and it'll stick on a, on a cabinet. You all know what I'm talking about? It's almost like we come out of the womb more like one of those little sticky splats with our heart just ready to attach itself to something. And what it is, is our, 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 our hearts come out of the womb looking for security, looking for stability. And then the other thing it means to be human is that that search, that longing will keep you awake at night. You will vow to not give yourself rest, sleep. You'll vow to not go into your bed. You'll vow to not even go into your home until you found the thing that'll calm your heart down, right? So in the same way, we search, our hearts search for the thing that we're longing for, but ultimately at the deepest level, that search is really just a search for God. On the surface, it feels like a search for financial security. It feels like a search for a relationship. It feels like a search for good work or meaning, but at the deepest level, it's a desire or an instinct that was put there to wed you to Jesus. It's a desire that was put there to, to drive you to him. And so ultimately, similar to David, is uh, we have a deep, deep desire inside our hearts that recognize our need for the nearness of God. Now, listen, the difference between us and David at times is, as David got to the end of his life, he understood this rightly. He understood that, uh, you know, he could see clearly that my security, my stability was based on the presence of Yahweh. But for us, like I said, we can attach ourselves to anything. This is where um, things like, in, in, in a really obvious way, anxiety comes from this. You know, you wake up or you, you, you go to sleep perseverating on something. Like I just said, we've been buying a house or we've been searching for a house. And the number of nights I've laid up just thinking through, how is this thing going to work? Where are we going to live? How am I going to pay for it? You know, all that stuff. That's anxiety. That's, that's, that's an example of my heart attaching itself to something other than Christ for security or stability. But sometimes it's, uh, when we're in the midst of relative security, it can arise as ambition, right? Those things that keep you up at night that are goal orientation or that are driving. See, there's a sense that even though I'm secure now, I still got to keep getting ahead or something's going to catch up with me. What I wanted to give you guys is just those two examples of the fact that our hearts, like David, long for security and stability, but ultimately those only come from the nearness of God. And what's sweet about this psalm, it's, it's sort of a bummer about the story, but um, David's very first heir, the very next one to sit on the throne, fails. David's throne fails. Ultimately, David's not allowed to build the temple. Solomon, his son, is allowed to build the temple. But you fast forward a couple hundred years and the temple gets 
drug down to the ground. See, even though David, David, even in his pursuit of the Lord, had attached it to building a temple and securing his throne, ultimately David couldn't take for himself the nearness of God. And that leads us to our second point. I, I wrestled with how to describe this relationship. As you, as you get down into, flip with me to verse 11. And the Lord swore a sure oath from which he will not turn back. I wrestled all week with whether or not this was uh, Yahweh's, the Lord's response to David. Was there something that David did that manipulated God into making this promise? Was it, was it David's hard work and his deep per- desire and rugged pursuit of the Lord that initiated the Lord making a promise to him? And then I realized that's just not what the scriptures say. As you turn, as you get to verse 11, nothing happens other than God just decides to initiate a promise. There is literally nothing about what David did that brought the promise to him. And, and what, the, what the, uh, the promise is, is again, remember, David is looking for security and stability. And then as you get to verses 11 and following, the Lord makes a promise to David of his own initiative that says three things. He's gonna give David a king. It says he's gonna, he's gonna cause a horn to rise and flourish. He's gonna cause a lamp to be set. And then he says that that king, uh, his throne is gonna endure, that his throne will, will continue. And then the third thing is that, uh, and you just gotta look a little closely at the text of this, but that son is gonna be a covenant keeping son. Do you guys see that? Let me walk you through these for a second. So uh, jump down to... Here we go. Verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. You get to the the middle of these promises and you start to see on one hand, uh, the Lord is promising to David, you will certainly have a king who will sit on the throne. But at the same time, you have this tension around the son who sits on his throne has to keep the covenant, has to be a covenant. We just talked through how Solomon failed and broke the covenant at the beginning. But then again, God himself takes the initiative. Jesus Christ, God himself steps down into human history, takes on life as a human, submits himself uh, to, the, to life um, under the covenant, and then perfectly keeps the covenant. All right, okay, that was a lot of setup. Here's what I want you to see this morning on that note. Jesus Christ sits on the throne as the king of the people of God. Second thing I want you to see is Jesus Christ sits on that throne because he won that throne for himself. Jesus is the one who kept the covenant. Your sin, your covenant breaking, this world's chaos, all the things that drive us nuts do not dethrone Jesus. All of your sin does not keep the will of Christ from being able to be done in your life. And the reason is, is because Jesus Christ kept the covenant and he is the one who won for himself, the king and the throne of the people of God. Do you hear me on that? All right, that's good news. The first promise is, is that there is a king in the people, amongst the people of God. And he won that throne for himself. 
And there is absolutely nothing in all of creation, including your own sin, that can keep his will from being done towards you. The second thing it says is that uh, not only is his will um, able to be done to you, but his will will flourish. And then you see right next to it, it's at the very end, it says that his enemies will be put to shame. The enemies of Christ are exactly the same as the enemies of the people of God. They are, again, your sin, death, pain, tears, evil, like the whole list of things that we just, this morning when we were praying through the, the prayer of confession and assurance, the whole thing that leads us into chaos and that leads us into forgetfulness and that, that, that takes us away from Christ, not only will Christ's will towards you definitely be accomplished, but all the things that war against it will be put to shame. And again, it's because Jesus Christ kept the covenant and the throne permanently belongs to him and he has the right to execute his will towards the church. So the first promise, the first point I wanted you to see was that the human heart longs for security and stability, but the first promise I want you to see that's given to the church is that there's a king on the throne, his throne endures, and that that king was given to you by God himself. He didn't arise from the midst of the church. But then that leads us to the question of, well, what is Christ's will towards us? been talking a lot about the, 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 the inability to resist his will. Usually by now, when we start to talk about a king or even in our, our matter, a president, we start to think about things like the economy or cities or nations. You know, a, a, a new head of state will arise and they'll try to expand the territory that they have and they'll, they'll sort of annex a country near them or or if you're in a capitalist country, that will measure them by how well they've, they've grown the economy and gotten that, that sort of fired back up. Or maybe you'll go, um, you'll go into a new nation and you'll see the beauty of their cities and go, this must be an amazing king. In this psalm, when it starts to talk about the kingship of Christ, I want you to notice the terms that it uses to describe it. It describes people. The kingdom of Christ is people. Let me say that to you another way. The kingdom of Christ is the church. You guys and everyone else who, whether you gather on Sunday, and everyone else who belongs to Christ around the globe and throughout history is the kingdom of Christ now on this side of his return. So what are the promises that are given through the kingship of Christ to the church, to the people that belong to him? The first one I want you to see, uh, flip down to, it's, at the, it's, it's in the last stanza. Notice in verse 16 what it says, her priest, I will clothe with salvation. The first promise that's given from the king to the people of Christ is salvation. Uh, I want you to think about, um, do y'all remember the story of the, of the, just a couple weeks ago of the soccer team? that got buried in the cave in Thailand. And now they're, they're up and they're out and they're starting to, some of them are starting to like make the news circuit of tell, talking about what it was like to be down there and talking about the rescue and now talking about what it means to be back up and restored to their family and, and redemption. And they've begun to become known as the boys that were saved from the cave in Thailand. 
Salvation has begun to become their identity. But here's the thing about that. For them to be saved, for them to become known as, as the one who've received salvation, they had to be stuck in the bottom of a cave for that to happen. And the same exact thing is true here in the scriptures. It is saying that, uh, I just want to be really clear. So the, the promise that's not given to you, the promise that's not given to the church is the promise of invincibility. Jesus didn't say, because I'm the king on, uh, of the throne, nothing will ever, you will be perfect. Nothing will ever jam you up. Nothing will ever harm you. You will never get into a bad spot. He didn't say that. Second thing he didn't promise, he didn't say, because I'm the king on the throne, the priest will be perfect. Y'all won't be perfect. He didn't say they, they will, uh, they'll suddenly go from messy to clean or weak to strong or any of those things. What he's describing is when a priest in Israel would prepare for his life, when he would prepare for his work, what he would do is he would go in, he would be bathed. And then as he came up out of the water, they would begin to cover him with his priestly garments, with the work, with the garments that he would wear for his work. And what the scriptures are saying here is that the people that belong to Christ, their very person ends up covered with salvation. Let me say that to you a different way. The thing that's sweet about this promise is not the fact that you need salvation. That is already like a done deal. You need salvation. The sweet thing about the kingship of Christ is salvation is promised to you. If you come to Christ, whether you've never come to him before or you've been walking with him for 40 years, you come to Christ in the midst of a mess looking for salvation and you know what you will be given? Salvation. He will rescue you. The second thing I want you to see is uh, not only are we, are we given salvation through the kingship of Christ, uh, we're also given um, satisfaction. Do y'all see that up in verse 15? It says, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Same exact rhythm here as, as what we just talked through. Notice that um, the scriptures don't promise about the king that his people will be needyless. You won't have any needs. My favorite thing that he doesn't say is he doesn't say, uh, my people will be self-sufficient. My people, he doesn't say, will, will take care of themselves and handle it. He admits on the front end, my people will be a needy people. And you know what their needs will be met with? Satisfaction. We already talked about it this morning, but this begins with the deepest, deepest need that you have. The deepest part of your heart needs the nearness of God. You need to know God and to be known by him. You were made for that. The reason your, your heart comes out of the womb sticky, ready to attach itself to something is because you were made to be attached to Christ. You were made sticky. And the sweet news is that Christ gives you himself. At the very deepest level, forget all the other stuff that you think that you need or want. He gives you himself. I was just telling somebody this the other day. I was, again, the housing thing. I, I was... I was I was wrestling with 
Like, are we ever going to find a place to live? You know, all the people who know us are, are, uh, are probably laughing. Or they are, I'm watching you guys laugh right now. Um, but the Holy Spirit just, just kind of like wrecked me with this, that Kevin, if you can trust me with your sin, the deepest need you have is your sin to be dealt with. You can trust me with the house. There is no need that you have that is deeper than your need to be for your sin to be dealt with. There's no need you have that's deeper than than needing Christ himself to be near to you. There's no need you have that's deeper than the promise of resurrection and a new creation, a new world to live in. Everything that's at the deepest core of your needs has already been surely given to you in Christ. Everything else is just just an afterthought. But I do want to be really clear here this morning. I want to talk about the difference between needs and wants. Y'all know where this is going to go. And already, if I'm you, the tape is playing in my head. Sometimes we go, now listen, listen. God gives you what you need, but not always what you want. He gives you right, just exactly what you need, right exactly when you need it. But, but, but be careful because everything that you desire, he's not sure to give you. And what we're really saying in the back of our mind through all that is God's stingy. Y'all ever thought that before? I mean, he's, he's good and he saves us, but he's stingy. What I want to tell you this morning is that God is the farthest thing from stingy. When he chose to save you, do you you know what he gave you? He didn't just handle your sin. The king of heaven gave you his very own rights. He gave you himself. He's never, the best thing that the Trinity could give to you has already been given to you in Christ. The Lord has never been anything but extravagant towards you, which leads us to the question, well, what what do we do with the things that God doesn't give us? Which is part of where this need for assets of our faith, the promises of our faith come from. What do we do when there's something we think we need and it's not being given to us? What's going on there? And it raises the question of good. What is God's good towards you? And what I want you to see this morning is that because of the way you were made, that stickiness we were just joking about, because of the way you were made, you were made for union with Christ. The scriptures describe you as the image of God placed in the cosmos that he spoke into existence. What that means is that when creation sees you, they, that you're designed for them to see God himself and that you were given stewardship of this creation. All that's been given back to you in Christ. Now, here's the thing. God loves you, not partially, completely, utterly, if you'll let me use that word. And he loves you so much that he's unwilling to let a secondary good compete with the best thing in your life. Let me say that again. Say it a different way. He will not give you a single thing that will take you away from Christ. He won't permit anything to remain long 
that will keep you from Christ. But you know the other thing that he'll do? Is he's more than willing uh, to take away the things that do keep you from Christ. You hear me? The only, the first priority that God has is to wed you to Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing at work in you and among us, is to take the people of Christ and wed them to Christ. And so what I want you to see is that as you go through the hard things, that you, you fall back on the need for the promises of the faith, the promise that's being given to you as you go through hard stuff is not that God doesn't love you. He certainly loves you. What he is doing is wedding you to Jesus as you go through hard things. So it leads us to our final point. What should we do with these promises? What should we do with the assets that are, that are, that are deposited in the church, the faith that's given to the people? You know, I'm, we're, again, I'm telling you, we're buying this mortgage or we're, we're, we're working through this mortgage for a house. And, and, and as you do go through that, you look at the assets and you go, well, I wonder if I'm leveraging those well. You know, you just, it's just one of those moments where you like look at the stuff that you own and you think well about your, or try to think well about your stewardship. And what are we supposed to make of the fact that God gave to the church a king and that he gave to the church a king whose will will be done, whose throne will never end. And what are we supposed to make of the fact that that king intends to give you salvation and satisfaction? Well, the first thing we should do with it, and I want you to see, uh, flip, flip back with me to uh, verse seven. The first thing you do is you come to Christ. When this psalm was being written, it was, uh, it was, it was being written looking back to um, just, just, the, just the murmur of the fact that maybe God himself would have a temple, a, a, a permanent location of his promise. And that was enough for the people of God to say, let us drop what we're doing and come up, go up to him and pay homage to him. To go, up, go up to him as a way of demonstrating the significant worth of his presence. But you know what's sweet on this side of the cross, on this side of Revelation? Do y'all see how it describes the temple in here? His footstool. It describes the temple as the place that God's, that God's foot sits. And that was enough to call the people of God up. Do you know the way the scriptures describe Jesus Christ? He is the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. Not the foot, not the toe, the whole fullness, the character and heart and power and majesty and kindness and love of God dwell isn't even jammed up, it's pleased. It's at peace to dwell in Christ. The thing that's been given to you is so much more than the footstool of the temple. What's been given to you is complete access to Christ, to God himself in Christ. So what that means is avail yourself of access. Right now, you're, you're probably going, I mean, this is the time for the altar call. Like, tell me, to, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, what does it mean to come to Christ? Your king is a king who is chosen to dispense salvation. 
Salvation can be a big $5 church word. It can be one of those, we don't really know what it means. It's just a way of saying rescue. It's a way of saying uh, help in the midst of your mess. What it means to come to Christ is to come to him needing saved. The same king who desires to satisfy you, what it means to come to him is when you realize that you're needy, you got to decide where you go with your need. What it means to come to Christ is to take the need and go to Christ with the need, with the king who's promised salvation and satisfaction. So the first thing that it means that you do with these promises is you come to Christ, but you come messy. We just sang it. Uh, I'll forget the words right now, but it says, um, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Jesus Christ doesn't desire for you to come clean. He desires for you to come messy because he intends to demonstrate his glory in the cosmos by saving you. The second thing that we should do with it is, what do we do when we get there? We, we, we box up our neediness. I just boxed up my house. We box up our neediness. We bring it to Christ. We bring it to the Lord. And now we're standing there between us and the Trinity carrying a box of neediness. You know what you do? You plead the promises of Christ. You unpack that box based on the merits of Christ and not your own merits. Uh, let, me just, let me just point this out to you in the text. Uh, flip back to verse one. It literally opens with remember. And then it talks about all the sacrifices of David that are worth being remembered. And then it says, uh, flip over to verse eight, arise for the sake of David. See, the, the instinct of the people of God was to leverage the promises that were given to them. There is no one who's going to deal with your mess other than Christ. You won't clean it up on your own. So what it means to come to him is to come to him on the merits of his finished, perfect work, of clarity about his will towards you, that in Christ God loves you, literally has is working out your good. The other thing that it means is it, now listen, It means to refuse to come to him on your merits. You hear that? Pleading the promises of Christ means you set your, I mean, you come with your neediness and your sin, but you set aside the guilt and shame and reproach of your sin because it's dealt with. And you know what else it means? It means you set aside your faithfulness and your goodness and your cleanliness. Perfect stability and security has been given to you in Christ. And the only thing that's left for you to do is to come and take it. Only thing left for you to do is to come to him, plead the promises of him, stand on the merits of Christ. That's the beautiful asset, the deposit, the promise that's been given to the church is that nothing less than utter redemption has been given to you and it's been given to you on the merits and finished work of somebody who's not you. It's been given to you by a king 
who won for himself the will to reign and whose throne will endure forever. There is nothing that will disrupt that ever. Redemption is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful this morning that you chose to step down into human history, that you chose to win our redemption, to accomplish it. Father, we are grateful to you. We are indebted to you. We, we are, our whole being belongs to you because it seemed good to you to plan our redemption in Christ. And Holy Spirit, we, we acknowledge that we live by you, that our faith was called into existence by you. You're the one who's taken the word of the gospel and placed it in our heart and wed us to Jesus. And so this morning, we just pray that you would make us a people who take great rest in the kingship of Christ, that we take great rest in the promises that have been given to the church, that you set us free from our own merits and that you give us boldness and courage to rest in the merits of Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.